We have coming up our gift for the Little Food Pantry, and I know we've got a target. We've got a little ways to go. September 13th is the day where we're trying to hit that by. So next week, you know, if you need to put a sticky on your fridge or something to remind yourself, uh, that would be great. Also, this Saturday, I believe, at 9.30 a.m., the Creekside Safety Team is putting on in conjunction with, I believe, is it the Urbandale Fire Department, Mike? Yeah, they're going to have a little seminar here from 9.30 to noon, just a safety presentation. They're going to be talking about shooter response and, and bleed control training. And everyone is welcome to come. They'd love to have you. you. You can still have time to get home before the big game in the afternoon. So... Uh... Steve, you want to come up? And also, we've got a couple guests that you want to introduce as well. So, These are our, our, our dear friends, Darwin and Darlis Anderson. They have, we've known them for over 20 years, 22 years for sure. Uh, met them before that, but been in partnering in ministry. They're uh, ministry colleagues. They are mentors to us, uh, just great encouragers to us, and always challenge us with living out the faith that we profess and we're honored to have them with us as friends uh, I, elders are gracious enough to uh, said I could introduce Darwin and let him come and just share for a couple minutes about his ministry and what he's all about and I encourage you to take some time to get to know him a little bit after the service so Darwin why don't you come on and, and share what's on your heart brother well it's our joy to uh, be with you this morning um, you know, we uh, we love Steve and Marla a lot and uh, Steve's one of few men that dares to speak into my life um, I don't know why that is but uh, but he is and so we always appreciate time with them seems like we can be together for three or four minutes and be right down to brass tacks of faith and and love for Jesus and and living for him so we appreciate their friendship greatly uh, Darlis and I have been with International Messengers, a small, small mission agency based in Clear Lake, Iowa, for the last uh, 28 years. And we, uh, I'm a dairy farmer by, by training. You can probably still tell that if you shake my hand. Um, and uh, you know, God called us into missions uh, because of a young woman that came to know Christ through my wife and our little daughter. And when Janet uh, gave her life to Christ from my staff on this farm I was managing, uh, as her boss, I got to watch her just morph and grow and change from death to life and, and from despair to hope. And it just, I had been walking with Christ for 15 years at the time, and it just trashed everything I'd been chasing um, to watch her and to see how she changed. And, and how her life took on meaning for her. And so so we started asking God, is this what you want from us? And he said no, and moved us into missions. And so, yeah, you be careful what you ask for. And so we, uh, we've been in missions uh, since then, and, and uh, God has then moved us into uh, directing international messengers the last 15 years. Never set out to do any of that. Um, but he has uh, kept us in it. And we're a small mission. We have about 200 staff. Um, you know, we're serving in 25 countries. Uh, we have 21 nationalities. That's kind of one of our niches, is that we have uh, lots of people from lots of nations serving as missionaries with us. 
Uh, we have training centers in Montana, way out of the way. Uh, we have a training center in Odessa, Ukraine, uh, way out of the way. And now we have one in Beirut, Lebanon, way out of the way. And uh, so picking up more and more uh, indigenous or nationals uh, coming to work for us, taking the gospel in their countries and then to other countries, and we've just kind of let that spread. Um, probably our largest growth area is Central Asia, just in the last few years. The Ukrainians have uh, started to move into Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, that area, and uh, serve there and serve the, uh, the indigenous churches there, try to share the gospel there. So, uh, so that's kind of who we are. Our second uh, uh, niche in missions is we're the mission of the second chance. And so we have quite a large number of missionaries that got in trouble with another mission. and. Uh, and then came to us, and we've rehabbed them by God's grace and put them back on the fields. And so that's kind of our other, our other niche in the missions in the missions world. Another thing we have a passion for is the local church here in North America. So our staff every year ask us for 20 to 25 short-term adult mission teams. And so we try to find them out of local churches, 20 to 25 short-term mission teams to go and share the gospel alongside of them. And so Dar and I led a team into Lebanon, into Beirut in June of 25 to 80-year-olds. Um, and many of them in their 70s and a lot of them in their late 60s, early 70s, mid-70s. Uh, we looked at them and said, how in the world could this be God's heart to take people of your age into Beirut? And, uh, and God said, just watch me. And he just used them incredibly in Beirut with people out of Syria, out of the war zone in Syria, and, uh, and humbled us greatly. We shut our mouth again and, uh, and just let him do the recruitment. And he, he knew who he was bringing to Beirut with us. And, and God used them greatly. So we spend maybe two or three months a year training and preparing adults to go uh, minister alongside of our staff and share the gospel. So, so that's who we are, and we're just thrilled to be here with you today. Thank you. Darlis, you want to come up? We don't do this enough. Uh, we, we say God answers prayer, but we need to pray. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for these dear friends of ours. I know that they are uh, not people that our church people here know well yet, but I pray that by God's grace someday they can know them better. And I pray for your rich blessing on their lives and their ministry. You know the burdens that they carry. You know the heartache, hardships, and struggles that they have, not just personally, but also because they carry the weight of caring for 200 missionaries and their families, and I pray that you would give them an extra measure of your grace. Give them wisdom. Continue to raise up people by your Spirit's power that will go with them into ministry and advance the cause of Christ. In whose precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I'd invite you to pray with me as we prepare to look at the Word of God and continue to worship him through our study. Father, once again we come to the Psalter who 
instructs us, the various authors of the Psalms. And my prayer is that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would do a work and continue a work in my heart and each of our hearts. As the psalmist himself prayed, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your word. And may you take those truths, may you drive them deep into our hearts, and may they form and fashion and shape our actions that give glory and praise to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 1940, the British troops left their shores and traveled to France and Belgium to attempt to stem the tide of the Nazi advance. They were driven back to the sea, and a call went out from the troops to the people of England. We need your help. Would you come and rescue us? And they got a reply back that said, and if not... Immediately, their reply galvanized the British people who sent an armada of private vessels across the English Channel to rescue thousands and thousands and thousands of British soldiers destined to die if they weren't rescued. But they sent this message, and if not... The message was not unique to them, but immediately the British people knew what they were talking about. It was a reference to Daniel chapter 3, verse 18, where Daniel's friends, facing certain death, at least so thought Nebuchadnezzar, in the fiery furnace, had said, O king, we will not bow down and worship your golden image, and the God whom we serve is able to rescue us, and if he does not, or and if not, we will not bow down. The British troops said, look, we will fight to the death even if our countrymen don't deliver us, and if they don't deliver us, we will still trust in God. Daniel, his three friends, said the same thing. And what Daniel and his friends said, what the British troops believed, is what believers throughout the centuries have clung to. That God is able, and God is with us, and God will strengthen us. You see, in life that we face, there is chaos, and there is confusion, and there is calamities that come our way. And these things bring us to a place where we just feel like, hey, I'm, I'm vulnerable. And so we cry out for help, or we look to someplace for help. But where do we look? Some people look to Google You know, I'm going to search. I can find the help that I find in Google or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram, maybe something, or to a bottle or to our friends or to our families. We look a lot of places because we know that we need help. The psalmist David in Psalm 121 points us to the only real true place of help when we are facing sorrow and struggle and hardship and difficulty. You see, in Psalm 120, which the psalmist says, 
we're, we're, we're up against it because there, there are slanderers and there's a struggle and there's a hardship. And the psalmist then in, in verse one in chapter 121 takes us on a pathway of trust in the midst of the struggle. There's someone we can trust to as we wake and make our way towards home, which is Psalm 122. And so it's kind of this, we're in trouble, we trust in the Lord, and then He brings us home. And as we turn to Psalm 121, it seems to me that we have here in the text, at least I see three different affirmations that give believers blessed assurance that God is protecting us, that God is preserving us, that God is providing for us in the difficult life we live here as we are on our way and until we reach our heavenly home. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 121. Read the text and then we'll begin to look at what are these three affirmations that we can cling to to give us hope and help in this life. I will lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. The Lord will protect you. He will be your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day and the moon will not strike you by night. He will preserve or protect you from all evil. He will preserve your very life. He will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. In verses 1 and 2, we see that our Creator is the true source of our protection. This group of psalms begins in Psalm 120, and there are 15 of them, and goes through Psalm 134 called the Songs of Ascent. These Songs of Ascent were originally written by the psalmists uh, to be sung as the people of Israel made their pilgrimage for three annual festivals up the treacherous and troublesome trail towards Jerusalem located in the hills or the mountains. That's what they were given for. This was given and served the, the, the misbehaving, misguided, maligned, and mocked people of God for, for centuries. So they would sing these and keep coming back to them as, as hope and help in their difficult time. In Psalm 121, uh, the psalmist talks about his trust. We did a, a series on uh, different characters of the Bible. and One of the titles of one of the series was Tenacious Trust. Well, here's another example of tenacious trust. The psalmist says that this is, he, he, through Psalm 121, I think it, at least for me it inspires me and it instructs me on where my help is and where my hope should be when life is hard. And he instructs and inspires believers of every age and every time and every difficulty. So it doesn't matter what you're challenge is. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. It doesn't matter if you're not struggling, you will. <laughs> or you will have a challenge. It's just coming. And where do we go? 
six times in this psalm. It's variously translated, but six times the same Hebrew word is used. And the essence of the meaning here is to watch over for the benefit of the one who is being watched. The older versions translate it, the Lord is my keeper. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will keep you. Some say the Lord will protect you or preserve you or watch over you or guard you. Same idea. He is watching over. So with God's protection, God's preservation of his people under his ever watchful care. That's the idea. His protection, his preservation under his ever watchful care is the thrust of the psalm. Verse 1, I will lift my eyes to the hills. We talk about the, the source of our help. Well, he's searching for it, okay? He's searching for it. And actually, the, the, if you read the text, the eyes and the use, basically he's just kind of having a conversation with himself. I will lift my eyes to the hills. Uh, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot slip. He's talking to himself. He, will, he who watches over, he won't slumber or sleep. He who watches Israel will not slumber or sleep. He, he's talking to himself. He's having a little conversation with himself. It begins there. Two years ago, I, read, I rode on one day of Ragbri uh, with uh, some friends, and uh, the guy that is in the picture up here, I think I have a picture of the guy. Do I have a picture or not? One minute. We're getting it. It doesn't matter. I rode on Ragbri one day. Well, the guy I rode with is kind of a, he was kind of a kamikaze. It's like I'd been riding my bike quite a bit, but it's like, boy, this guy, he was going like crazy. And so we were like 65 miles we rode this one day, and we did it in five hours, and that included all the stops that we made along the way to stop and eat. So we averaged 15 miles an hour uh, the whole time, including all these stops. That's moving. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to die. I kept reminding myself. I kept talking to myself. You got to eat. You got to drink. So I had to have, you know, Beekman's ice cream. I had to have, you know, I had to have lots of, I had to. You know, I just had to, had to, because I'm burning calories, so I just had to eat. No matter what the consequence, I just had to eat. I had to drink. I had to keep drinking fluids. I had to keep drinking water. I'm talking to myself. He's talking to himself. The psalmist wasn't looking to the mountains themselves. He wasn't looking to the pagan gods of the mountains, which were frequently the pagan gods of the Canaanites were always prevalent, always placed on the mountaintops. They had these pagan temples all over. He wasn't looking there. That's idolatry. I think he was looking beyond them. And perhaps, we don't know this, can't prove it from the text, perhaps he was looking as he made his way towards Jerusalem, which was located on the mountains, he looked to the heavenly city, he looked to the city of God who was his help. But for sure, for sure, he was looking beyond the mountains, beyond the mountains, to the one who made the mountains. And we know this from verse 2, where our sovereign source of help is revealed. Verse 2, I will lift my eyes to the hills, he says. Where does my help come from? That's his question. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. That's his source of help. The God who spoke, as we were reminded in the first service, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, verse 6. The psalmist 
spoke the world. He says he, he's the one who I'm took, looking to. Only our creator, only the God who made us is personally able to protect, preserve, and provide for us in any and every situation that we're in. Why would we look somewhere else? We want the one who has the power to uh, supremely powerful to help us. Our son, uh, Tyler, when he was in high school, he made this huge armoire. Uh, Marla, bless her heart, she said, if you're going to make it, you might as well make it big enough to use it. And so the, the thing is like six foot three inches high. It's like three feet wide, solid oak. The thing is a beast. The last time our son and daughter-in-law moved, my son enlisted the help of his six-foot-three-inch ripped uh, friend who has biceps bigger than most people's calf muscles, and then my son, who's not a small boy, and the two of those guys moved it. If you're going to do something that needs power, you need to get enough power to do it. He says, where does my help come from? I'm not going to trust in Google. I'm not trusting in my friends. I'm trusting in the one who made me and who owns me and who understands me. You see, according to Colossians chapter 1 and verses 16 through 18, the one who made him is the risen Christ. He says in Colossians chapter 1 that we are created by him. He says, for by him all things are created, things in heaven and things on the earth principalities and powers, all things are created by him. And then he says all, not only were all things created by him, but all things are created for him. The risen Christ is the creator, as we are again were reminded in the first service in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it was by the Word that all things were created, the Word being Jesus. And so God the Son is the one who is part and parcel of creation. He created us, and He created us for relationship with Himself, but our sin alienates us from Him. And so there it is. He goes on in Colossians to say that God the Father made, through, made peace through the blood of His cross, reconciling us to Himself through the blood of the cross, because our greatest need, our need for help, our greatest need for help is not what most of us think is our greatest need for help. Well, you know, I need help getting through school, okay? I need help with my job. Yeah, that's true. I need help with raising my children. Yes, true. But our greatest need is to overcome our alienation from God. Isn't it interesting that he said, and he reconciled us to himself, having made peace to the blood of his cross. That's Colossians 1:22, I believe peace. Why peace? Because we are at enmity with God. Because we are born alienated from God in our sins and deserving of His judgment. And so He made peace so that we could be reconciled. That's the thing of reconciliation, what reconciliation means. A relationship of hostility is now a relationship of peace and goodwill. When you reconcile, it is hostility, now it's goodwill. That comes through the blood of Christ who died on the cross. 
to pay the debt that we owe so that God's wrath would be poured out on his son on, on the cross of Calvary and we would experience God's peace. This is the psalmist pointing us, I think, to him who is our peace. He is our protection. He is our preservation and he is our provision is made possible. Jesus' death on the cross is the grounds whereby we have the protection of God, the preservation of God, and the provision of God. Apart from our relationship with God, we have none of that guaranteed to us. But in relationship with Him, all of that becomes ours. Secondly, uh, our Creator God is specific in the protection He provides. He's moved us from the fact that God is our protector, preserver, provider. Now, in verses 3 through 6, to the form in which his protection, provision, and his preservation take. The psalmist, it says, in two ways, he affirms God's ever-vigilant watch care over us. First, in verses 3 through 4, he protects us from stumbling. He says, he will not let your foot slip. We were visiting my folks in Mesa a few years ago, and wouldn't you know it, I mean, this is how God has a sense of humor. We, we, we go there in like the first end of December, first part of January, because we are like, we're going to escape the cold, right? And so we arrived there and enjoyed the coldest on-record temperatures in Phoenix since they started taking records. It snowed on New Year's Eve in Mesa, Arizona. So we went hiking up Superstition Mountain, which is east of uh, Mesa, and we were hiking on snow-covered, uh, not completely, but there was snow, and then there was wet, or wet, and then snow, the higher up you went, and then ice. And we got up a ways, and we, we saw this family with their children coming down. And this poor young child kind of, uh, they misstepped and went head first down the trail and landed on a rock. When we stumble, it leads to harm. And here the promise of the psalmist is God will keep us from stumbling. He'll keep us from harmful things that deter us and take us away from our faith, our trust in Him. He'll keep us focused. God's protective care is then, it's likened to a watchman who will guard us. He will not let your foot slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Ever watchful, vigilant watchman that doesn't go to sleep. When was the last time you thought about that? God's not sleeping on the job. I heard a story once about a British gal, I don't know why my mind is on the, the Brits now, but it, it was, but as I was working through this sermon, it's like this, this British lady, during World War II, they had these bombing raids. The bombings, the sirens would go off all the time, and they'd have to take shelter and take shelter. And one particular night, the, the bomb sirens, the air raid sirens went off, and this elderly lady, uh, she just said, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> and her family says, you can't do that. What are you doing? And she says, you know what? The good Lord promised that he would not sleep and he'd watch over me so there's no sense in both of us staying up. Now, 
it's kind of funny, but yet I wonder if we really live that way. I'm not talking about foolishness. I'm not talking about not taking precautions. I'm not talking about being senseless. But I'm talking about are we, are we willing to trust that God is good? We can rest that He is ever watchful. And you know what? It's also true in Psalm 127. He says that He even blesses us in our sleep. What a beautiful picture. And God not only protects us in our sleep, but he's our shade on our right hand. Now again, this imagery, this is Im- uh, metaphorical language. He says, he is, the sun will not strike us by day and the moon. By-. He's not talking about heat stroke here, I don't think. Now maybe, partic- maybe I'm not saying always, but there could be heat stroke. Sometimes he has protected you and me from heat stroke. That may be very well be true. But not primarily. It's like he's not protecting us always from these things, or lunacy. Interesting thing I came across in my study here is that the the word that we get lunar, that's the moon, right? So there was a superstition that the rays of the moon would drive you mad. That's where we get our English word lunacy from. No, he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is that God is watching over us. The image of God as our shade conveys that he is our keeper, our watch caregiver, day and night. For the things that we do see, the dangers that we see, the calamities, the struggles, and the things we don't see. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but uh, since Darren Darlis are here, we had the blessed privilege of serving with them in Slovakia, and then we traveled down to southern Hungary one time with them, and we arrived at a train station in Budapest. And God's watch care, yes. Uh, We arrived at the train station, and neither one of us had enough cash uh, on us to pay for the train trip down to another town in southern Hungary, and I did have a credit card. Now, if you've ever traveled overseas, most of the time it's a little impossible to use your credit card because it'll get rejected for security reasons when you, you know, I live in Iowa and I'm in Budapest, Hungary, swiping my credit card for train tickets and I haven't called ahead of time to the credit card company and telling them I'm traveling out of overseas. I mean, you can travel to St. Louis and they may not accept your credit card because you're not living in the same town just for security. So first thing is, I swipe my credit card. Okay, Lord, got accepted. Train tickets got paid for. And I mean, we are like, because our driver who didn't speak English and we didn't speak Slovakian and he took us to the wrong train station the first time and here we are, I'm sitting in the front, tra- front seat with the, the guy, and darn darlings were in a different van. They were following us, and our driver, get this, I'm telling him what train station to go to. And I've been in Hungary like maybe a half a dozen times. And I says, no, it's not the Kelly train station, it's the Daily train station. Well, where's that? He's showing me his GPS on his phone. Oh, I said, no, that's okay, go here, get on this road, and go this way, and it's up here at the end. I've never been there, but I know, it's a- I know the area where it's at because I've been to the end of the, the electric train station, long story, it doesn't matter. We go out, we got our tickets, we walked out to our train, and we see the engineer of the train. 
leaning up against the train for a few minutes before our train takes off. He was totally inebriated. This is the train we're getting on. We looked at each other and we said, okay, here we go. Sit down, find our seats on the train, and about a third of the way through the trip, we get a guest who decides that he's going to sit right across the aisle from us in the train. This guy, I don't know, he was high, he was drunk, or both, and he wanted to, he, he saw our, our women folk. And all of a sudden, he decided to become real friendly. Could you give me some water and blah, blah, blah. He was a uh, cage fighter. I'm kind of thinking, well, if we have to take him out, I suppose we can try. My point is this. God is watching over us in what we see and what we don't see. As I slept in night as a teenager and the window in my room went slapped against the frame, I jolted awake, went back to sleep, got up the next morning to see that the tree about 10 feet away from my window had been completely uprooted, twisted, and turned and laid down. God does sometimes protect us from the danger and at night, and we see it. But then he goes on and translates and this, and from the imagery, he gets to more concrete specifics in verses 7 and 8. Four direct and progressively intense assertions are given in verses 7 and 8 to bring us to the climax of trust and to instill us with confidence that this God that we trust in is exactly able to protect, preserve, and provide for us regardless of what happens. Notice, he says he will protect you from all evil. Verse 7, the first part. God will protect our life, our soul. That's what life, soul, means our very life. I was talking with a friend recently, and he said that he was had visited with some folks who had been in Haiti on a mission trip. Now, it's not to freak you guys out, but this was back earlier in the summer when there was rioting in the streets of Haiti because of the, the price of fuel was supposed to go skyrocketing. They were rioting in the streets of Port-au-Prince, and this mission team was driving through this, and they were in serious danger. Twice, on two separate occasions, a, a person, and I use that in parentheses, appeared out of nowhere and and moved, physically moved things and invited them to go in a different direction, which they did, and it probably saved their life or possibly saved their life. Then they look around to see where that person, quote-unquote, was gone. God is protecting, preserving, and providing for us when we don't see it and when we do. He keeps us from numerous calamities. He keeps us from numerous difficulties. He keeps us from different hardships. But he also keeps us through them. Notice he says he he protects our going out and our coming in. He's watching over us every day in everything we do at all times. 
I know some people thought we were crazy. Uh, our daughter was 20 years old at the time, and we let her travel uh, to five different countries halfway around the world. I always refer to it as her trip around the world in 80 days uh, because that's about how long she was gone. She's 20 years old, single, and she traveled to England, and then she went to Bangladesh, and then she went to Nepal, and then she went to India, and then she met us uh, to do ministry in Hungary and then come home. Well, how could you do that? Why would you let your daughter do that? Well, because we believe that God is God. And we took precautions, and she had people that she was to stay with. Uh, some of them she actually knew. And uh, so it, it was like one of those things. Were we throwing our daughter to the wolves? No. We did common sense stuff, but at some point, they walk out the door, and they aren't mine anymore. And so we've tried to show our kids that it is good to go. And God will take care of you. And if not, we will trust him anyway. But God, he has always proven faithful. He's always proven good to us. Wherever you go on this planet, wherever I go on this planet, we are never more cared for, never more watched over than we are wherever it is in his palm. Where can I go from your presence, the psalmist says. Where? Can I go up to, if I go up to the mountains, you are there. If I go down into Sheol, you are there. Psalm 139. There's no place I can go that I'm outside of God's purview, outside of God's protection, outside of God's preservation. And if God decides that he's going to preserve us or protect us from something, praise God, if he only decides that he's preserving us and protecting us through it because he has work to do in us, then so be it. So, is the psalmist promising us a trouble-free life. I mean, you got to read through this. If you're honest, you read through this and you go, whoa, that sounds pretty good. Trouble. You know, could have dropped my iPad and then we'd have been in trouble, right? No. God does not promise us a trouble-free life. He does promise us his presence and his preservation. Notice, how does the psalmist begin? I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Second phrase. Where does my help you don't ask, where is your help, if you don't never need help. That's an assumption that we will need help. Most of you have read the book of Job. If you haven't read the book of Job, I didn't encourage you to do. Job needed help. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, and you can write these verses down, read them later, but in Romans chapter 8, he says, what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Shall that separate me from the love of God? No, he says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. And then what most people like to skip is what he says in, and I think it's verse 35. For we are considered sheep before the shears, before the slaughter. Sacrifices. Like sheep before the shears, we are dumb. For I am convinced 
that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other created being is able to do what? Separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just confess I don't live that way most of the time. Nothing. We are either protected from it or we are preserved through it so that one day we gain glory. That's the, that's the prize. So now the challenge is to live in light of it. Jesus says, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I know, I know, I know some of your heartaches, some of your hardships, and some of your headaches. And it grieves me. I'm sorry. I wish I could change it. But I can't change it. And God may not choose to change it. But that does not mean He's not God. It does not mean that He does not care. It does not mean that He is not at work. And if not, we'll trust Him, the psalmist says. God is watching over us for our good even when we stumble and even when we struggle and even when we suffer. Sometimes He prevents us from experiencing the trials and tragedy, and other times He preserves us through the calamity. I think Eugene Peterson is correct when he says there's no injury, there's no illness, there's no accident, no distress will have evil power over us that is, will be able to separate us from God's purpose for us. And I would say, or his plan for us, or his sanctifying perfection of us. I don't like pain. I'm the biggest coward on the planet. I, I hate it. I mean, I'll run from it if I can. But you know what? It's just really hard to grow in Jesus without it. I mean, we get comfortable. We don't need Jesus. And we get to learn that pretty well. You're going to experience hardships and heartaches and headaches in life. And you may do right now. We all do. Isn't that interesting? It's like we think somehow, and this goes back to last week, somehow we think we should be exempt. <laughs> you know, I'm a believer, so God's going to give me this hunky-dory life. Not. But we have Jesus. And the world doesn't. Peterson goes on and says, the difference is that each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God or accompanied by God. We are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what, the Lord will preserve us from evil. He will keep our life. And I would add, He will bring us home. I hope that when you read the Psalms, you see a psalmist who lived life for real. A guy who knew what you're going through, or guys that wrote it. I mean, there's various ones. They understand where we're coming from. And they point us constantly. God is our refuge and ever-present help in the time of need. Not Google. Not your family. Not a bottle whether it has pills or alcohol in it. But God, who loves us, and who sent His Son 
to die on the cross. Our greatest need is for forgiveness, and God provided for us our greatest need and provided the grounds whereby we would have his perpetual presence, protection, preservation, and provision through the cross that we remember when we come to take the bread and the cup. It's something other people don't have. We've become partakers of his family, and as his family, he is ever watching over us, and he will bring us safely home. Here this morning, and you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're invited to take these elements with us to remember the bread broken as a symbol of his body, and the cup resembles or is a symbol of his blood shed, so that all who believe would be reconciled. And no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it becomes, God has never and will never abandon us. We can run from him but he'll always be there to welcome us back. Let's pray. Father, as we break this bread and we drink this cup, help us to rejoice that we can be called your children, not by anything of ourselves, but that you, through the blood of your cross, you reconciled us to God the Father if we believe. And if we don't, there's a path. The path is clear to trust and accept Jesus' death as the payment we deserve so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And we would know that we can lift our eyes to the hills, not looking to them, which was paganism, not looking to the gods, uh, the pagan gods that inhabit them, which would be paganism, but to beyond it, to the one who created them. And be in relationship with you. And so we take this bread as a reminder in this cup, and I pray that we would reflect and confess our sins before we just willy-nilly run up here to take and remember. But as we do, we'd reflect and rejoice, we pray in Jesus' name.